Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You know, of the 30 most watched television broadcasts in history, 29 of those 30 are Super Bowls because people love a good contest. People love a good contest. That's why there is the annual beard and mustache contest that's held in Belgium. The 20th annual wife-carrying contest was held on October the 12th, 2019 in Newry, Maine. Let's not forget about the World Pea Shooting Contest that's been held every year since 1971 in Witcham, England. Can't forget about toe wrestling contests. Nor should we forget about the International Cherry Pit Spitting Contest that was won by Kevin Boomerang Bartz in 2019. People love a good contest. And so as we resume our series on the triumph of God and the ministry of Elijah the prophet, you might find yourself drawn to the events of 1 Kings chapter 18. While Elijah has withdrawn from the stage of Israel's national life through most of chapter 17, Elijah re-engages in chapter 18 where he confronts King Ahab and he instructs King Ahab in chapter 18 verse 19 to assemble all of Israel and the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah to appear on Mount Carmel for a contest. And while this contest took place 2,800 years ago, not 800 years ago, but 2,800 years ago, though it took place a long time ago, if we believe the Bible is true, it's one of the most dramatic and important contests that has ever occurred in history. It's a contest between the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh, and Baal, the false god to whom the covenant people have turned in worship under the leadership of King Ahab and Jezebel. And this contest on Mount Carmel will reveal who the true God is. And so if you have your Bible this morning, you can open them to 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 29. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find a Bible, a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats nearby in front of you. And that text is on page 171. Again, that passage is 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through 29. So if you're able, I invite you to stand now for the reading of this text. Beginning in verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. And then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. 
And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is missing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Well, as we explore this passage, we discover in these verses that there's a reason for the contest. There are regulations for the contest. There's also results of the contest. So we want to start with the reason for the contest in verses 20 and 21. To remember what's going on in Israel at this time. Elijah appeared before King Ahab at the beginning of chapter 17, and he announced that there was going to be neither rain nor dew in Israel except at his word. This announcement by Ahab was both a form of covenant curse upon the people for breaking the covenant and worshiping Baal under the direction and leadership of Ahab and Jezebel, but it was also a direct assault on Baal, who was believed to be the god of rain and of storms and of lightning. And by the time we get to 1 Kings chapter 18, this drought that has resulted from there being no rain and no dew in the land has gone on for in excess of three years. It's gone on for three years, so it seemed like a contest is hardly necessary because the the impotence of Baal to provide rain has been on full display for over three years, while at the same time, the power of God to bring life and blessing has been displayed through the ministry of Elijah the prophet. But that power has been mostly hidden because Elijah has been in Kareth and in Zarephath, outside of Israel's national scene. But now the powerlessness of Baal and the power of Yahweh, Israel's God, will be more openly displayed in this contest on Mount Carmel. And we might imagine that this power is going to be manifested by the sending of rain. But it's not going to be by the sending of rain because the primary reason for the contest is not the sending of rain. In fact, that's not even how the winner of this contest is going to be determined. It's not going to be by the sending of rain. And that's because something is more important than the sending of rain. You know, it's easy for us to conclude that the main problem for Israel is the physical misery that's been caused by this drought, and the solution is rain. But to conclude that would be mistaken. It's wrong. Because the real problem in Israel is not the physical misery of the drought. The real problem in Israel is a spiritual one. It is the sin of of false worship and the solution is not rain it's repentance and returning to the one true God it's easy for us to diagnose the main problems as the main problems and that's because we're often far more concerned about our misery whether that's physical misery or emotional misery than we are with our sin relieve us of our misery even if our sins remain and we're mostly just fine with that but it's the opposite with God. God is more concerned with our sin than he is with our misery. Author Paul Tripp 
puts it like this. He says, while we tend to be intolerant of hardship and difficulty, God is intolerant of our sin. And so he uses hard things to deliver us from it. The only name for this is grace. But it's not the grace of release. It's the grace of rescue and transformation because that's the grace we really need. It's not that God doesn't love us enough to care about our misery. He does care about our misery. In fact, he's going to send rain to Israel. But God loves us too much to allow us to remain comfortable and yet estranged from him. I mean, after all, what good will it do for Israel to be relieved of this misery of the drought and to have the blessing of rain if they remain alienated from the living God who imparts life to them? And indeed, we can ask, what good is it for us to live a comfortable, easy life if we wind up in hell in the end? And so Elijah gets straight to the heart of the matter in verse 21, posing this question to the people. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. The Lord is giving an ultimatum to the people here by speaking his word through Elijah the prophet. The people cannot worship both Yahweh and Baal. They have to worship either Yahweh or Baal. They can't have both. And so the reason for this contest is really because God requires exclusiveness in worshiping him. He requires exclusiveness of worship. He calls us to forsake all others. Forsaking all other gods. Now that language of forsaking all others, you might recognize as wedding language. Do you take this person forsaking all others? And it's appropriate here because that's the kind of relationship that should be reflected between God and his people. We should forsake all others in our devotion to the Lord. And that should hardly surprise us. It's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. God will not share his people with other gods, any more than we would want to share the marital devotion of a spouse with other people. He's not gonna share that. But he calls us for devotion that is reflected in obedience. Because notice, the words of Elijah are very clear here. God is not just some idea to be contemplated. He is a great king to whom we owe our submission. If the Lord is God, follow him. Follow him in faith and love and devotion and obedience. As our creator and our redeemer, he lays claim as our covenant God on every aspect of our life. And the truth is that the central issue in our life, the central issue in your life and the central issue in my life is always this, who or what will you worship? That's the central issue. Who or what will you worship? Not who do you profess to be worshiping, but who are you really, truly worshiping in the daily moments of your life? Worship extends beyond what we're doing here on Sunday morning. We're worshiping something or someone all the time with our lives. And so what does your life reflect in the moment-to-moment -moment experiences throughout the day about who or what you're worshiping? Who are you worshiping when someone cuts you off in traffic? or you're delayed in traffic and you know you're going to be late? Who are you worshiping? Who are you worshiping when your plans for a quiet evening are interrupted by your unruly or needy child? 
Who are you worshiping when you're alone on your devices, your computer, your phone, your iPad? Who are you going to worship when you're navigating that conflict with that person at home or at work or at school? Who are you going to worship and who are you worshiping when you're wronged and insulted by someone? When you're feeling the pressure of doing something that you know is wrong, who or what are you worshiping? Do those responses in your everyday life reveal a worship of your personal comfort and convenience and your safety or a worship of your desires and your wants and your feelings? Or do your responses in those everyday moments of life reveal a love and a patience and a grace and a humility and an obedience and a contentment that is born out of your worship of a God who is sovereign in his rule and a God who is good and wise in his providential ordering of your life? Who or what are you worshiping? That is the central issue for you and the central issue for me. And the reason for this contest is because God calls for exclusive worship that belongs to him and him alone. And the issue for Israel is who's it going to be? Is it going to be Yahweh or is it going to be Baal? It can't be both. God is not going to share his people. But we notice in response to Elijah's question, that question is met with silence. They don't say a word. They just want to sit on the fence. And so what is God going to do in response to a people who just want to stay on the fence? Well, he's going to do what he often does with us. He's going to pursue us by his grace. He's the one initiating this contest on Mount Carmel. He's the one that's assembling the people. He's the one pursuing his people, not the other way around, because he is committed to drawing them to himself and reclaiming their hearts to himself. Because he's committed to that, we hear Elijah announcing the regulations for the contest in verses 22 through 25. The regulations for the contest. And these are all kind of set up to provide this kind of test of revelation. A test of revelation. Whichever God sends fire from heaven, probably in the form of lightning, to accept an offering in response to the prayers that are lifted up to this God, that God is revealed as the true God. It's a test of revelation, which God will reveal himself as the true God by sending fire from heaven. But when we look at these regulations, it appears as if all the advantages are with Baal and the prophets of Baal. I mean, consider that the prophets of Baal outnumber the prophets of the Lord 450 to 1. Can you imagine having a contest with those kinds of disparities in the numbers? 450 against 1. All the numbers are with Baal. But this is important for us to remember. Maybe it's, an, it's, it's as important for us to remember today as it's ever been important for us to remember this. Truth and righteousness are not determined by numbers. Truth and righteousness are not determined by a majority vote, by public opinion, or by approval ratings. Truth and righteousness are determined by God and by his word. And while Elijah might be outnumbered by the prophets of Baal, truth and righteousness are on his side. But not only are the numbers on the side of Baal's prophets, Elijah seems to give them every conceivable advantage as he establishes these regulations. We see that they get to pick 
the bulls that are to be offered. They pick the first bull to be offered, and then they get to go first when the contest begins. They get to cry out to Baal first, and if Baal answers by fire, which should not be a problem if he's a god of storms, he can surely send a lightning bolt. If he answers, Baal wins. The contest is over. Elijah doesn't even get to go. It's already been determined. The only stipulation for both the prophets of Baal and Elijah is they are not to set fire to the offering. It's only the true God who will set fire for the offering. And when these regulations for the contest are presented to the people in verse 24, despite all of these disparities and all of these inequalities, the response of the people is, it's well spoken. That's good. Seems fair. Let's go ahead with this contest. And so the contest is set. But while these regulations for the contest seem to be all slanted toward the prophets of Baal, we know that the reality is Elijah is the one with all the advantages because the true God is with Elijah. And this becomes evident when we see the results of the contest in verses 26 through 29. After the, prof- the prophets of Baal select and prepare their bowl, we're told in verse 26 that they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. So for several hours, this chorus of 450 voices is imploring Baal to send fire from the sky. But there was no voice. No one answered. So they have to do more. They break out their disco ball. Okay, it's probably not a disco ball, but we do read that they go limping around the altar that they had made. This is the same word that Elijah uses in verse 21. How long will you limp between these two opinions? It has this idea of of just dancing around. How long will you dance around this decision, people of Israel? If, If the Lord is God, worship him. If it's Baal, worship him. And now they're dancing around this altar that they have made. And when this doesn't elicit the answer from Baal that they're hoping for, we read that they begin to cut themselves with swords and lances, according to verse 28. We're not told why they do this, but we know it's not limited to the activity that's happening on Mount Carmel. It was their custom to do this. We're not told exactly why they do it. Perhaps they believe that this display of sincerity and sacrifice would sway Baal to answer them. We might think that we're far removed from thinking such things when we cry out to the Lord. But isn't it true that we can sometimes act as if we get enough people to be praying? Or that if we pray long enough, or if we can display some kind of extraordinary willingness to sacrifice something, maybe not cutting ourselves and shedding blood, maybe that, but maybe just offering God some kind of display of an extraordinary sacrifice as we bargain with him that will somehow be able to persuade or manipulate God into giving us what we want. It's easy to fall in to that kind of thinking that we can manipulate God into action. Elijah doesn't fall into that, but we won't see that until next time when he offers his prayer to the Lord. He doesn't pray that way at all. But we don't get to see that in our verses. What we do get to see is that an entire morning of this lame spectacle is about all Elijah can take. And so we read in verse 27 that he begins to mock them at noon. Maybe they need to cry louder. Maybe he's missing. Maybe he's deep in thought and doesn't want to be disturbed. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. That's the connotation here. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's not answering because he's he's busy in the bathroom. Maybe he's away on a business trip doesn't have a cell phone with him. 
Maybe it's muted. Maybe he's not getting your texts. Maybe he's sleeping. All of these suggestions are dripping with sarcasm from Elijah's mouth. We might even think that they sound insensitively insulting to someone who truly believes these things. He's insulting these prophets. We have to remember a couple things. Elijah's being kind of consistent here because the pagan gods were often more superhuman than they were divine. They had more human attributes. And so it's, it's not strange that Elijah would be saying, well, maybe he's missing, maybe he's gone, maybe he doesn't want to be disturbed, maybe he's relieving himself. Remember that Baal himself was believed to hop into the sack with Asherah to produce the rain. That's more human-like than it is divine-like. The pagan gods were limited in their powers. They were often restricted to geographical regions. Maybe Baal can't help. He's far away. He's restricted geographically. But more than anything else, Elijah is exposing the emptiness of idols and their inability to hear and to help those who are trusting in them. Indeed, as this display of bleeding and pleading goes on, that's what we can say is happening with the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. They're bleeding and pleading with Baal to answer. Past midday until the time of the oblation, the time of the evening sacrifices, this is likely happening for near or in excess of nine hours. They're crying out to Baal. But the results of the contest become crystal clear when we get to verse 29. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Let's be clear about one thing. The prophets of Baal did not lack sincerity or conviction in their prayers. They firmly believed that Baal was God and that he would answer by sending fire from heaven. And they exercised more fervor and more fanaticism and prayed for longer than most of us have ever prayed to God for, the true God for. They're displaying sincerity. They're sincere, but they're wrong. They're praying to a false God who is no God, and no amount of sincerity and no amount of conviction is gonna make up for that. That's important for us to grapple with because we're living at a time where it seems like the only thing that matters to people is if you're sincere in your beliefs. As long as your beliefs are sincere, it's good, it's valuable, it's true, but it's not. Because the reality is that sincerity will never transform something false into something true or something fake into something real. Because people can have deep convictions about and great sincerity toward a spiritual lie. I would suggest that we see it every time a devout Muslim prays to Allah, and every time a Buddhist or a Hindu practices meditation to connect with the divine apart from faith in Jesus, and every time a Christian prays to Mary or the saints. It's all sincere, but it's futile. And maybe we need to be more specific in talking about prayer to say it's not so much that there's power in prayer. There is power in the one to whom we pray. And it's sincerity and commitment to the truth and to the God of truth and to the one true God rather than idols that in the end is what really matters. Sincerity and belief in the truth and the one true God is what matters. Because if our commitment is to idols, what we see here on the top of Mount Carmel is that all idols in the end will fail to deliver what we're asking. 
of them. Eventually, they will all fail to deliver what we're asking them to deliver. And you may not find yourself on the top of Mount Carmel this morning. You're in your town. And you may not find yourself worshiping Baal. But the truth is, you're involved in a contest. A contest is happening this very moment. It will happen today. It will happen all this week. It's always happening. And that contest is taking place on the turf of your hearts. And because that's happening, the contest with idols and the one true God is happening, we have to ask ourselves some very important questions like these. What is competing with God for your ultimate allegiance? What mistresses or forbidden loves are you flirting with? What rivals to the Lord are given access to your soul? To whom or what do you look to fill your heart with life and blessing that is in competition with God? We need to ask ourselves those questions and we need to reckon with the truth that in the end, all the idols will let us down. They will always eventually let us down. Perhaps your rivals might be in the realm of health or your physical abilities or your appearance or your beauty. Your hope and your life to fill your heart is in these things. But they will fade. And people will do all kinds of unhealthy things and go under all kinds of procedures and surgeries that make them look less human to try to retain these. But they will fade. They're not worthy of your hope to find life. Perhaps your rivals are in the realm of approval, popularity, fame, being liked. These things are extremely fleeting. They're as unstable as water. Ask Kevin Spacey, Oscar-winning actor. Ask Matt Lauer, former host of the Today Show. Ask Lance Armstrong how fleeting popularity, approval, and fame can be. And if you don't know who any of those people are, that only proves the point of how empty and futile seeking popularity and approval can be. Or perhaps for you, that rival is pleasure. You're seeking pleasure to fill your heart through things like drugs or food or sex or other things. But when we're looking to these things to fill our hearts instead of the one true God who alone can really satisfy and fill our hearts, we'll only end up with deeper cravings and lessening gratification from these things. We'll simply end up feeling hollowed out inside and enslaved to our desires through addictions. That's all we're going to be left with. C.S. Lewis says it well in the screw tape letters. He says, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's the formula. <laughs> to get a man's soul and give him nothing in return. That is what really gladdens the heart of Satan and his devils. And that is what happens when we turn pleasure into a God and set pleasure up as a rival or competitor with the one true God. Perhaps I haven't hit on yours yet. Maybe it's money or wealth or possessions that is competing with God in your heart. Maybe it's marriage, family, children. Maybe it's your work. But what we have to understand is that regardless of what it is, they can't deliver what you're hoping that they'll deliver. They can't provide you with the spiritual rain that your heart is craving to receive. Only the true God can supply that kind of rain. Hoping in idols eventually will only leave you tired and frustrated and feeling beat up, empty, 
and lifeless. That's what we see on Mount Carmel. The futility of Baal is on full display on Mount Carmel because he fails to deliver in the arena that was supposedly his area of strength. He's the god of storms. Surely you can send a lightning bolt. But he fails. He's not worthy of trust. Only God, the true God, is the one capable of answering. And he's the only one capable of answering the deepest longings of your heart for lasting life and abiding blessing. But we don't get to see that here in this text yet. We don't see how the Lord answers and responds because we're only at halftime of the contest. Baal has failed. But what will the Lord, the God of Israel, do? Well, I'll give you a spoiler alert. He's going to act. He will answer and he will act in power and in love and in grace to draw his people back to himself and reclaim their hearts. That's what he's going to do. But we need to see something very important. We'll see this triumph of God, Lord willing, when we get to the next verses. But what we need to understand now is that that power and that grace and that love comes to the people of Israel on Mount Carmel for the same reason it comes to us. And it's not because of what transpires on Mount Carmel. That power and grace and love is extended to them because of what happens on Calvary. God answers with grace and blessing on Mount Carmel because he doesn't answer on Calvary. On Mount Carmel, God speaks through the prophet Elijah and the people are silent. But on Calvary, the great prophet speaks, the greater Elijah speaks from the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God is silent. On Carmel, God speaks and the people are silent. On Calvary, Jesus speaks and God is silent. God doesn't answer. And the reason God doesn't answer is because Jesus is doing something that Elijah could never do. Jesus is bearing the penalty and condemnation that is due for divided idolatrous hearts. Divided hearts like mine and divided hearts like yours that are not given in full devotion to the Lord who is worthy of all of our hearts. Jesus is bearing that punishment in our place. Jesus was cut off from blessing and communion with the Father in our place so that those blessings and communion can be secured for us. And because Jesus did that, God speaks a word of grace and love and mercy and atonement and life and blessing through Christ Jesus, the one through whom he draws our hearts to himself and reclaims our hearts for himself. He does that through Christ Jesus. And so because God has spoken that word to us, it's a good word, it's good news, because he's spoken a gospel word to us, let us not respond in silence then. Let us respond by looking to Jesus alone to give him our faith, our trust, and our worship. Maybe we need to do that in a recommitment way, to renew our commitment to looking to Jesus alone as our Savior, our Redeemer, and the satisfier of our hearts. But maybe you need to do that for the first time. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you need to look to Jesus by faith for the first time and embrace that word of mercy and hope and life and blessing that is extended to you in Christ Jesus. Look to Jesus by faith. Let us not remain silent, but let us not just look to Jesus. Let us sing to the one who is the life the one who is the fount of every blessing. Let us look to the one who is able to give us grace that will bind our wandering hearts 
to him and that grace that will tune our hearts to sing his praise, both now and forevermore. We're gonna sing of those things in just a second, but let's close in prayer. Our God in heaven, we confess our idols and our divided hearts this morning, and we need your grace. And we thank you that in Christ Jesus, you have not spoken to us with a divided heart, but you've given yourself fully to us to reclaim us, to draw us to yourself, that we might more fully be yours. Lord, we pray that by your grace, we would turn from our idols, cling to you, find life in you and you alone. And we thank you that you've imparted that to us in the goodness of the gospel through Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.